Hello from New York. Welcome back to Oral Max Facts. Today we are doing bronchospasm, episode two, board review. So, uh, really, last time you had another amazing conversation with Dr. Harper on bronchospasm. Yes, Dr. Harper did an amazing job again, talking in detail about perioperative risk factors for bronchospasm and the management. Um, very similar to what we had with laryngospasm. So with any anesthesia emergency, time management and preparation is the key. Most importantly, the goal is to recognize factors that could increase the bronchospasm in a patient and knowing how to avoid it. So with that, let's jump into our first onset question, shall we? Let's do it. All right, so a seven-year-old male needed a general anesthetic and intubation for an elective surgical procedure. He presents with malaise, a productive cough, and thick nasal discharge. How long will you wait to reschedule the procedure? Here are your options. A. No delay necessary. B. 7 to 10 days. C. 2 to 3 weeks. Or D. 1 and a half to 2 months. What do you think? I know the on-site answer will be somewhere to 4 to 6 weeks. Although it may not be very realistic as kids are always sick. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things we also talked about in, in our bronchospasm talk. Yeah, so this kid clearly has the signs of upper respiratory infection, and children with upper respiratory infection have an irritable airway and are at the higher risk for laryngospasm, bronchospasm, and post-intubation croup, pneumonia, and episodes of deep saturation. Bronchial hyperactivity may last anywhere between four to six weeks, after upper respiratory infection, that's why it's recommended to delay treatment for at least six weeks. And what if the surgery was urgent? In those cases, we have to make sure we have a protected airway, maybe something like LMA. Mm -hmm. In my practice, I make sure that they don't have an active infection going. If the lungs are sounding clear, they don't have it. Well, first of all, I don't really have any kids less than 10 years old, but if I have Let's say an adult patient that comes in with upper respiratory tract infection that was even two, three weeks ago. They didn't take antibiotics. They don't have any active signs of infection. Their lungs are sounding clear. I honestly go ahead with the surgery and knock on wood, it's been okay. But, you know, that's it's one of those things we have to weigh, weigh the risks and benefits of. Yeah, the book says this, and how do you want to do it in your practice? And if you are getting into trouble, do you have all the stuff ready that you will need? You know, as long as you are ready to tackle the problem, then you might be okay. Yeah, in my anesthesia training uh, here as well, some of the anesthesiologists, you know, who do particularly kids mm -hmm. sedation or anesthesia, they always go somewhere between two to three weeks just from the reality of that the kids are always sick and not any sniffy nose is like a, a actual upper respiratory infection. So... Mm -hmm. You definitely have to develop that sense of listening to the lungs and, you know, doing a mm -hmm. risk and benefit analysis for each case separately. Yeah. But the onside answer is four to six weeks. <laughs> yep. Okay. So now let's say if you have a smoker or someone with asthma, what would be your anesthetic drug of choice? So in the words of onside question, which of the following drugs is most protective against bronchospastic activity? And our options are Atomidate, metohexetal, propofol, and thiopental. So, obviously, the answer is propofol. Um, propofol is known to have bronchodilator 
properties and it decreases the incidence of intraoperative wheezing in patients with asthma. Entomodid, on the other hand, has less of a depressant effect on ventilation compared to barbiturates, but it does not protect against bronchospasm. And barbiturates are a big no-no if you are thinking about bronchospasm as a risk factor in a patient. Yeah, I love that they still have thiopental as one of the answer choices. I haven't really seen it in practice so far. (laughs) Yeah, we don't really use them anymore. I know in other countries, so I went to India and spent a week in Bangalore at the uh, smile train unit, and they actually still use the barbiturates there. Um, I know in my anesthesia rotations here, I didn't, I didn't see it, but I'm sure some hospitals still use it. Oh, that's interesting. So is it still important to know it in case we go for a mission trip or something? Yeah. Perfect. So Dr. Harper really did a great job of breaking the signs of bronchospasm in patients with open airway, the majority of our patients versus intubated patients. Increased respiratory effort, prolonged expiration, as well as wheezing, might be expected with an open airway, whereas the protected airway, sudden increase in peak pressure, or decrease a tidal volume are the acute signs of possible bronchospasm. And that brings us to our third on-site question. What action would you take in regards to the ventilation of an intubated and anesthetized patient who is in bronchospasm? Choices are A. Increase expiratory time by decreasing ventilator rate. B. Decrease inspiratory flow rates to decrease inspiratory time. C. Apply PEEP. Or D. Increase minute volume. So the answer is going to be A. Increase expiratory time by decreasing the ventilator rate. The objective in managing a patient who is having a bronchospastic episode is to minimize lung hyperinflation. Lung hyperinflation occurs when there is diminished expiratory effort, which results in gas trapping in the alveoli and small airways. Lung hyperinflation can be prevented by increasing the expiratory to inspiratory ratio, and slow breathing rate should also be used to allow for adequate ventilation and adequate time for exhalation. This should be coupled with an increase in inspiratory flow rate, which will decrease inspiratory time. So, Riddhi, can you explain why PEEP is not a good option here? I mean, simply because it impairs exhalation and increases the likelihood of distal Mm. air trapping. Also, a decrease in minute ventilation, a.k.a. tidal volume less than 10 mg per kilogram, will allow you um, controlled hypoventilation, and it should be used to allow for adequate ventilation and exhalation. That's right. Okay, so when we have the bronchospasm in an intubated patient, we have to remember to increase expiration and decrease tidal volume. Yeah, and also like Dr. Harper reviewed an algorithm for managing patients with bronchospasm in office setting. Um, Obviously, this case is talking about in the operating room, but, you know, some of the things to keep in mind in office is to keep time, check the um, blood pressure to look out for anaphylaxis, mass ventilation, and calling for help right away. Yeah, actually, after Dr. Harper's lecture, I went to our... um, I went to our sedation suite and make sure that I I have like pre-made calculations for the epinephrine mm-hmm. in case I need to because they come in those like super concentrated vials and mm-hmm. in a case of an emergency like I I wouldn't be able to do those math in a matter of seconds. Yeah, and one of the other things to practice if you haven't done it or if you haven't looked at your emergency card is to look at 
um, the albirol or how are you going to administer it, right? Because there's a special connection piece that you have to hook up to your bag mass valve to give albirol. And um, if you haven't tried it, if you don't know what the connection looks like, then that's something worth looking into because in the heat of the moment, you want to get the albirol in sooner than later. That's right. That's right. Okay. Cool. Uh, Reedy, do you want to take the, take the last question here? Yeah, sure. Um, last but not least, initial acute management of intraoperative bronchospasm under inhalational general anesthesia includes which of the following? A. Dacodron IV. B. Reducing the depth of anesthesia. C. Albiral meter dose inhaler through the endotracheal tube. Or D. Epinephrine IV. <sighs> We just talked about I know, <laughs> we kind of gave the answer away. But the answer is albuterol. So the intraoperative bronchospasm should be first treated by confirming that there is no mechanical obstruction of tracheal tube. If you have a protected airway, tube placement is correct. There's adequate depth of anesthesia is present. And then after all the mechanical issues have been checked, then the initial treatment consists of administration of beta-2 agonists, such as albuterol. And as most of you guys know, steroids are not helpful in acute management of any any, uh, emergency situation. Yeah, and if you're planning on admitting the patient, sure, go ahead and give steroids because it will kick in, you know, a little bit later. But emergently, steroids are probably not yes, a good choice. Exactly. And, you know, it's important to, as Dr. Harper mentioned, to have a wide scope of differential diagnosis. Of course, with bronchospasm, laryngospasm, you always also have the anaphylaxis in your mind. But there are other rare situations that could also explain the, the signs and symptoms, such as pneumothorax, pulmonary edema, even pulmonary embolus or pulmonary aspiration. We all should keep those in mind. Yeah, especially the algorithm will be completely different if it is actually an allergic anaphylactic reaction. Yes. And as Dr. Harper said, in case of a severe bronchospasm, that's when we use epinephrine, or if we see a decrease in blood pressure, then and we are actually concerned for anaphylaxis, then we can also go ahead and administer epinephrine. And one point about epinephrine is that um, how do you administer? Are you going to go for IV? Are you going to go for IM? Um, if you have the EpiPen available to you, IM is probably the best route. Yeah, because they're already like perfect dose and you just go through it, through the muscle. That's... Yeah. The thing about EpiPen is that they're expensive and not many institutions or many offices will carry them. So if you're not going to do it, um, you should know your health conditions. Yeah, I have it printed now, attached to the box in case of an emergency. <laughs> and from now on, I'm setting up two suctions, <laughs> just like being super prepared. This is a good habit to have, um, especially starting now, you know, you're still in residency and, you know, if you get in the habit of do, doing these things, doing your checklist ahead of time, it'll just become a good practice for you. Yeah, you know, one of our attending here always says like, you know, you have to practice like you're going to practice in your private private setting so you want to establish like a good habit sometimes it's easy for me at least to to like take secure sense of security in having so many backup like you know my attending and uh, my my chief residence there but it's good to have a have a practice that's built on just how I would practice in a private setting yeah very true the last words of advice uh, remember that not all wheezing is bronchospasm so being prepared and keeping a wide scope of differential diagnosis will help us 
keep the patient safe in case of anesthesia emergency. So thank you for joining us t- today again on Oral Max Facts. We have gotten some really good reviews from you guys, so thank you so much for your continued support. We would really appreciate it if you can leave us five-star reviews and leave us some feedback. We would like for you to spread the word. If you can help get more followers, it will help us continue our efforts in making these episodes. That's right. And don't forget to slide into our DMs on Instagram, Oral Max Facts. We look forward to seeing your cases and hearing from your experiences. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.